Hi, everyone. Just a note here. We're so glad that you've joined us for season two of Further Reading. Like many of you, we've been working from home. And while I have fabulous help from my editor, Samantha Hepperly, on the days when she isn't available for recording, I've had a couple of my own tech crashes. So please forgive our less than perfect recordings and many thanks to Sam for all of her hard work in fixing them up. Welcome to Further Reading, Craft, Creativity, and the Writing Life, a podcast from the University of King's College MFA program. I'm your host, Gillian Turnbull. On today's show, we talk to Richard Van Camp. Richard is the author of a stunning 26 books, which cross genre, format, and age categories, appealing to a broad readership. Anchoring Richard's work is his childhood in Fort Smith, Northwest Territories, where his connection to his community continues to provide inspiration. While Richard now lives in Edmonton, he has drawn for us a vibrant cast of characters who cross between his short stories and graphic novels. And along the way, he's brought fellow authors and visual artists to collaborate with him. Among his many accolades are the Blue Metropolis First Peoples Literary Prize and the Code Burt Award for First Nations in Young Adult Literature. He has been the Storyteller-in-Residence for Calgary Public Library and the Writer-in-Residence at the Metro Federation of Edmonton Libraries. In his most recent book, Gather, Richard Van Camp on the Joy of Storytelling, Richard compels us to think about how we connect with our communities, share story, memory, food, music, and culture at a moment when we are all craving it the most. Today, Richard talks to us about writing in different formats, collaboration, and the joy of telling stories. Hi, Richard. Welcome to Further Reading. Bless you, Mussy Cho, for having me. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for being here. I'm really excited to talk to you. And we are talking on the eve of your 50th birthday. So this is Mm -hmm. pretty exciting that I get to be here right before it happens. How are you feeling? Oh, thank you. I'm great. I'm great. I'm excited. I'm humbled. I'm I was just saying to a dear friend that I am so I can't remember a time I've ever been more grateful for all that I have. And I've never actually been more present in my life. You know, before the pandemic, I was hopping on a plane two or three times a month to tour like a pit bull with a headache to promote all the books that we have out. And when I look back now, I wonder how could I have lived that fast you know, and what that must have meant to our little boy at Zazi, who is now seven, what that must have meant for my wife, who's a full-time professor at the University of Alberta. It was madness. And so now every day I wake up and I get to work on various books I'm working on right now. And then I get to plan supper and I get to hold my son's hand as we cross the street, as we, as he plays with his friends. And I just, I'm so grateful for every single day and, you know, 50 is, it's, um, it's really a time to say, okay, we've done a lot. Now, what can I do for others? Wow. Oh, that's so lovely to hear. It makes Ooh. me look forward to 50, which is coming up. <laughs> yeah. Well, happy birthday Eve then. And I hope you have Thank a great you. day tomorrow. Thank yeah. you, Jillian. Thank you. Exciting. Hey, I had that couch. Everybody should see oh. the IKEA blue couch. You pull it out, suddenly it's a double. You go from yes. the single. I had that couch. The best. Everybody who can't see this, 
on the podcast. Jillian <laughs> is rocking the IKEA. It's a college special. Oh man, you know it. Since two thousand three, baby. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's been through a few uh, uh, slip covers thanks to the cats, but uh, otherwise, old reliable. <laughs> quality knows quality, baby. Quality knows quality. I had it. You had. I think everybody in college or university or you know starting over from scratch that's yep. the one <laughs> that's totally it yeah you yeah, go to the, the idea pinch, that'll carry yeah. you through a, a long winter <laughs> oh, this is awesome Amazing. we're family jillian we're we are yeah <laughs> just like that <laughs> all right maybe i'll put up a photo of my couch for uh for all our <laughs> listeners so you, so you can join the team feel part of this community <laughs> this is great this is great i'm yeah. in a good place that's a good sign that's a sign i needed today there you go keep on keeping on that's right. <laughs> so tell me, Richard, how did you start writing? What brought you to the profession? Well, it's interesting now that our little boy, Zazi is in grade two and he's doing online. So I'm sitting beside him throughout the day and helping him log on and off. And as we're doing this, I mean, it's only day three. I'm actually having huge flashbacks to, he has to do journal entries and he draws and then he'll write, roar and that's exactly how I started so if you look back if I were to open up my, my closet door here in my office there are 50 journals in, an, in a trunk in our basement there's probably 50 notepads and yes there's ninjas and throwing stars and you know nunchucks and all the good stuff that the yeah. 80s gave us but I really do feel that I was creative from day one I was very creative. I was always doodling. I was always drawing something on my, my desk. And to all the teachers that are listening, that really shouldn't be shunned. You shouldn't be penalized for that. You should really be regarded as, as an artist and somebody who's, who's funneling that good energy in, in a really positive way. And maybe you should give them a notepad and a, a nice set of pencils and, let, and, and turn them loose. So if it, if it weren't for the 100 plus diaries, journals, et cetera, notepads, sketch pads, that was really, I think me finding my voice. And then when I, I actually didn't want to be a writer when I started, I was going to get into land claims and I, hmm. I didn't know who I was when I graduated from high school. I was a great child of the eighties, mm-hmm. um, you know, fast times at Ridgemont high and uh, back to school with Rodney Dangerfield. I mean, I had the best childhood, teenage years, playing Dungeons and Dragons with my dear friend, James Crozier, and John Lee JQ, my brother, Raj, and Chris Heavyshield, and, and, you know, really wonderful guys. And I think that it was pop culture where I, where I really felt, for like a lot of people listening, it was really where I found my home. Fort Smith was fun, don't get me wrong. I mean, the 80s were such a great time to be alive. But at night, when you had, you know, the movie, the movie channel and HBO, and uh, Cinemax, it was it was this world I wanted to be in. And I was always into comic books and Savage Sword of Conan and Mad Magazine. And I'm so grateful. I think pop culture has done more to unite this planet than organize religion in a positive way. I'm talking about a really positive way. So when I graduated from high school, I, I took a year off. I was the handy bus driver in our community, which was the smartest thing that I ever did because I got to drive our, our elders around. And then I saw that there was an ad in News North saying, do you want to you know, 
understand your indigenous rights. In those days, we were saying Aboriginal. Do you understand your Do you want to understand your Aboriginal rights? Do you want to study land claims? Do you want to study the Canadian Constitution? And I was like, Yeah, I I, I want to start to understand what we were never taught in elementary or high school because it was a different time. And so I took this 10 month course called Native Management Studies and it was probably 1991 in Yellowknife. So I left Fort Smith at my own place and uh, it really transformed me because I was going to school with a lot of the leaders from smaller communities in the Northwest Territories and, and West, in the Western Arctic, which we call Den and Day. And they're still running the show to this day. A lot of the same names that I was sitting next to are still le in leadership positions and rightfully so the great, wonderful leaders doing so much for so many. And I had an instructor there named Ron Clausen who taught us communications and English. And I started to get a little bit of the writing bug and I started to work on some poetry and some short stories and creative nonfiction. And he would read them on his own time and he would give me really constructive criticism like really specific criticism and he would suggest these books to me and I would read them I'd inhale them and then I remember one day just as we were getting ready to graduate he pulled me aside in the hallway and he said Richard he said don't give your life to politics don't do it don't do it he says you're a writer you need to be with other writers just like you there's this place in Penticton called the Anaukan International School of Writing and once a year they publish this, this anthology called Gatherings and it's published by Thetis Books, which is in the same building, which is Canada's oldest Indigenous publishing house. So listen, I've got a whole bunch of them, and he handed me about three or four. He goes, take these home for the weekend, and if and if you love these, let's get you to the Anaukan Centre next year. And then they've got a sister program with UVic. You do two years at Anaukan, then you go into your third year at UVic. You can get a degree in creative writing. Most importantly, he said, you could be with others just like you, and that's what you need. You need community. So I said, okay, so I took these copies of Gatherings home and I, I remember poured a cup of coffee, sat down on my reading chair and I finally discovered my indigenous, my literary indigenous community. And I remember just sitting straight up in the seat and saying, there, this, is, this is Fort Smith, this is, this is Yellowknife, this is the Northwest Territories, except it's Okanagan Territory or it's Mi'kmaq Territory or it's Maliseet Territory. It, it was just so beautiful, so hilarious, so tragic, so dark, so beautiful. And then I remember that Monday, I went to Ron's office. I said, Ron, I need more. I realized how starving I was for community, for culture, for laughter, our kind of humor. And he said, great, let's fill it out. Let's fill out this, uh, this application and, uh, and let's give, just give him a call. And then I got accepted. And then I went to the Inauk International School of Writing. And that was in 92, I believe. And my instructors were Jeanette Armstrong and Lee Miracle and the late and great Maurice Kenny and Beth Cuthand and Jerry Williams. Just wonderful teachers. And I got to go to school with the late and great Lauren Simon, one of my dearest friends, who sadly passed far too soon. Mm -hmm. um, and I was there for two years. And I went with uh, other Indigenous students just like me. And that was really where I found my voice as, as, as an Indigenous writer. So... That's how it started, and I, I wouldn't be the person I am today had it not been for the Anelkin Center. And then, of course, I got to go to UVic, where I got my undergrad, then I did my master's in UBC. But the foundation years, when you look back, a lot of these journals that are in this closet here are from my Anelkin years, and I I'm, I'm, I'm just treasure those memories. I'm so grateful to everybody. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, just, that really speaks to the power of mentorship, and just the fact that somebody took time 
in their free time to mentor you and to consider what you had created. I mean, it's it's a story you rarely hear these days, right? Teachers are so overloaded, so overwhelmed. Um, you know, it's it's sort of impossible to imagine, but that's so beautiful that that happened and, and that it set you on your path. Wow. And then that's why I love that. Well, that's why I love to mentor so much now. Yes. I, yeah. I know what it can do. If we can get you one step closer to an agent or a publisher or a manuscript that you're really happy with, that's, you know, when it was Maureen Medved, when I was doing my undergrad, no, my, I was actually working on my master's UBC said, she said, your students will always keep you on your toes. Mm-hmm. And that's why we mentor. It, it keeps us fresh. We see how hungry people are. We, we see these voices where nobody's telling somebody you shouldn't be doing that. You mm-hmm. shouldn't be writing like that. Nobody's told them and they're breaking rules so beautifully in ways that they don't even realize yet. It's beautiful. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. So what did you do after that then to get into the business? Did you go and find yourself an agent? Did you start mm-hmm. submitting to journals? What was the process like for you? Oh, you're, you're asking the, the good, tough questions. So I started working on a short story. I remember saying out loud when I was at UVic, actually at the Anokin Center, I was just finishing. And I said, I want to I write a story that I would like to read. And I'm going to tell the truth and I'm not going to hold back. I remember saying that. I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to worry. I'm far away from Fort Smith. No one from home will ever read this story. And I, it was a little short story called Me and Johnny. And then the short story started to grow and I would leave it and then something would happen. I'd go back to it. And it was just this beautiful little garden that was waiting, this little cathedral that was waiting for me every day. And pretty soon the characters started telling me what they wanted to talk about. And then we had a novella. And then after five years, I had something that I had read you know, many, many times and I was deeply in love with it. I was listening to a lot of music, and I think that this is really important for your students. I mean, when you look at The Lesser Blessed, I thank all the bands. I mean, I couldn't have written The Lesser Blessed without My Bloody Valentine, Loveless, and The Pixies, and The Sisters of Mercy, and The Mission, Susie and the Banshees, Terminator 2 soundtrack, The Beloved. I mean, really beautiful bands. And I'd written the whole novel almost as a soundtrack to these songs, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important for, for craft and process for anybody who's listening is, as I meet writers all the time who need absolute science, silence when they're working, I need absolute music when I'm working. And, and mm-hmm. often I'll listen to the same song hundreds of times to write one short story because I am moved in ways that I, I, cannot, I can't even, you know, they say Tori Amos can see colors when she... I see story. I think songs pull me or soundtracks pull me into a perfect story. And I'm Mm. just there to show up and and get things down. So how I discovered Carolyn Swayze was I had, you know, me and Johnny as a manuscript. Uh, I was in my third year at the University of Victoria. And remember the, um, you see them on BC Ferries all the time, uh, BC Book World. Mm-hmm. So I was taking a class with Stephen Osborne, who's the publisher of Geist, and he put out a call to the students. He said, here's my magazine and here's BC Book World. Everybody grab a copy. So, of course, being students, free stuff, we all grab 18 copies of each. And uh, he said, I want you to tell me what I'm doing wrong with mine. And I want you to tell me what what, you know, BC Book World is doing wrong with theirs. And he said, just give me three pages. That's it. That's the class. Get to work and we'll see you next week. 
So I went home and as a Virgo, I was like, okay, let's go through this critically. <laughs> and I just said, you know, this is what I think is missing from Geist. And this is what I think is missing from BC Book World. But at the back, it was on the last page. And I probably have it still here. I cut it out. It's down in one of my photo albums. Was Carolyn Swayze, literary agent in White Rock. I remember Box 39588, White Rock, BC, had put in a little ad at the back. And that's all it said with her phone number. I think it's 2505383478, I think. <laughs> and I remember I was getting ready to write one of my final exams in my third year. I think it was Russian film and literature. And I remember just to my own surprise calling her and, I, and she picked up. She said, hello, Carolyn Swayze, literary agent. I said, hi, Carolyn, it's Richard Van Camp. And how are you? She goes, great. How are you, Richard? And I said, oh, fantastic, Carolyn. I said, Carolyn, I've just finished writing my first novel. And she said, great, tell me about it. I said, well, The Lesser Blessed is a, a fictional novel set in the fictional community of Fort Zimmer, Northwest Territories. And it's a love story. It's about a young man named Larry Soule and he is crazy for Juliet Hope, but she's crazy for his best friend, Johnny Beck. And he is haunted by his past. And she just said, I love it, Richard. Were you born in the North? I said, oh yeah, Fort Zimmer, Northwest Territories, born and raised. I'm at UVic right now. And she goes, I graduated from UVic Law. I'm like, great. She said, Richard, have you called anybody else about this? And I said, no. And she goes, you don't have an agent? I said, no, no publishers. I said, no. And she said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to send me the manuscript and uh, I'll be in touch. I said, great. And I had her address. So I sent the manuscript, printed it up. And I think she called me. I mean, she could, she's probably going to listen to this. And I think it was probably within a week. And she, I remember my, it was my roommate said, hey, Richard, somebody's calling on the landline. And it was Carolyn Swayze. And she said, Richard Van Camp, I have been up all night reading your book. Wow. Have you shown this? Are you sure you haven't shown this to anybody? I said, no, you haven't shown this to anybody, else? no other agents? I said, no. She goes, okay, I need a fax number. I'm going to fax you some papers and um, uh, I'm going to represent you. I could probably sell this to Douglas McIntyre within the week. And I was like, are you kidding me? She goes, no, Richard, <laughs> this is incredible. How long did it take? And I said, five years. She goes, it shows you've earned every single word. And then we ended up selling Bless or Bless probably within two weeks to Douglas McIntyre when Scott McIntyre was the publisher. Now, the Lesser Blessed, I have the original manuscript downstairs where it still says me and Johnny. And my editor was Barbara Pulling, who was my editor with Moxon Square Gardens. We had to work together in 23 years. And it was Barbara who really pulled the heart of, in fact, I was thinking this morning, we should really do, because I'm sure the 30th anniversary will be coming up in a couple of years, but we should really do the Lesser Blessed 20th anniversary included me and Johnny and included with that should be the screenplay because um, Anita Doran's screenplay, the cinematic adaptation of the Lesser Blessed, which is on, my goodness, it's on CBC Gems for free. It's on, I was just on Amazon the other night and it's there. Uh, it's so beautiful. I, I wouldn't change anything about the movie. I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of Anita as well. And of course, our producer, Christina Piavazan of First Generation Films. So that's really how I got into the business. That's how I secured an agent. And then from there, we got into the children's literature and then the short stories. And then 26 books in 26 years. And my latest book is Gather, Richard Van Camp on Storytelling with the University of Regina Press. Mm -hmm. A book I, I really loved reading. It came to me at just the right time, sort of late pandemic. Uh, just a very inspiring book and made me want to start writing and, and telling stories again myself. Yeah. Good. It's beautiful. So, Did you do any of the homework? There, I gave you some very sweet homework yeah. to do in there. 
I know, okay, not yet, good. not yet. Okay, not yet. When you're ready. I'm a Virgo, I nag. I'm a Cancer, I procrastinate. And I'm surrounded by Virgos who hate it, so I know. <laughs> okay, when you're ready. <laughs> I will, don't worry. So, so I mean, you t that's a, a you know, a, a truly inspiring story. And anyone listening who's kind of starting out in the business wants exactly that to happen to them. But I imagine that five years in developing the manuscript before you sent it was often, um, you know, difficult in, in a variety of ways. Yes. Or, or was it no. really, no, it was, you always it was the, going back. It was the sweetest place to be. It was better than mm. anything that I was doing as a mammal on planet earth. It was mm. waiting for me. It was dark. It was sparkling. It was mysterious. It was sensual. A lot of the novel goes into prose, uh, prose poetry. Mm -hmm. um, and that was something that I wasn't seeing a lot of back mm -hmm. then. Um, I was, a, you know, I was reading anything and everything I get my hands on. So I'm sure there's, there's many authors that inspired me, but I think it was, you know, when, when we were in Fort Smith, my mom married Jack Van Camp and he showed up with a, I mean, he's the greatest dad in the whole wide world. Uh, be a cool drum kit and see he had about in my now I'm an exaggerator Jillian but I think he had let's say a hundred records and part of the best part of my you know my summer days when I when we were home was remember the lyrics you would you would pull the sleeves out with the with the album and mm -hmm. reading the lyrics and the beautiful photography inside and the mysterious album covers and that to me was everything so I really do think, and this is something I don't think I've ever talked about before, if it weren't for those liner notes and the lyrics and the photography, I really don't think I could have ever written The Lesser Blessed. I really don't. Hmm. I think that that, I mean, you know, when you look at Slow Dive and you look at all these like My Bloody Valentine and you're trying, this is before the internet, when you physically have to imagine what they're saying or Pixies mm -hmm. Doolittle, I think that that was a spell that I was continually under. And I think that that's the beauty of the lesser blesses. It really is a spell when you read it. I could never mm. write anything like it again. Hmm. Wow. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> again, so inspiring. I, I agree with you. Like that experience of the tangible products of music, it's like entering a world. And so you're listening and yeah. you're enveloped by the sound of it already. And then it's just yes. that further step you take into a world by staring at those lyrics and staring at those images and touching the sort of physical product of what that music has to offer. It's as close as you can get, right, to the music that is surrounding you. That's right. So Jillian, you remember buying cassettes and oh, yeah. uh, I'm sure you remember the eight tracks and records. So a long time ago, when you saved up all your money and you bought you know, uh, 1999 by Prince, um, you, you know, those, again, he did his cover and he, the liner notes and his own artwork. So, I mean, Prince, 1999, every song is incredible. But when you kind of went on your own and you got My Bloody Valentine, Loveless, or the Pixies, uh, later on in the later albums, some of those songs were, they weren't the masterpieces we were promised. So, we had to wait, we had to discover, and I'm sure you remember Good Rockin' Tonight with Stu Jeffrey, and I don't know if you had mm -hmm. the equivalent, but we had, you know, Brave New Waves, staying mm -hmm. up really late to listen to Brave New Waves to discover all this great music. Um, I worry, I was just thinking today about the new generation of writers, because we don't have to wait anymore. They, they don't have to wait. If they don't like the song, 
they just skip ahead. So mm. I think it was in the waiting and the wondering and the disappointment of a song wow. or the majesty of a song that really was the patience and the endurance. And, and even if I didn't like skinny puppy, when you, when you bought those earlier albums, I mean, there were really three songs on one album that would, re that would speak to my heart. Right. And the rest yeah. was like a slamming door with a beat and do you know what I mean? And <laughs> yeah. it, it just wasn't for me. Maybe for yeah. the sound mechanics out there, go for it. But sure. I'm so grateful that it, I bought, you know, a thousand albums growing up. Okay. I'm exaggerating a couple hundred. Not all of them were, were the greatest be all end all, mm -hmm. but it was through the waiting and the imagining mm -hmm. and the pageantry of it all. And even if the lyrics didn't matter, maybe there were some songs that, that took me where I needed to be. Or you remember, um, Kate Bush, I mean, listening to her albums every night on my, with my headphones and I had the album or the cure disintegration. I mean, it's a perfect album and just being taken away. Yeah. I mean, you leaving. Oh yeah. What a gift. And I think that needs to happen to artists is that mm -hmm. you are born through the magic of others. Mm -hmm. You're born through, uh, the the wonder and the astonishment of others and you know when you look around my office and you see these books here behind me with all my cool star wars toys these the the books that are on these shelves in my office are only the ones that have ever moved me and i mm -hmm. always look at them and i think i want to be that good hmm. i want to do for others what these books have done for me i want to be hmm. that mysterious or that devastating or that hilarious uh and I think that's a pretty cool place to be. So we're going to talk about that, about craft later on with the five mm -hmm, tips. Is you've, mm -hmm. got, you've got to have your own palace in the world. Yes. Oh, what a lovely way to put it. Yeah. Okay. Now the thing I have to do, we've got sure. the music sitting over here. We have yep. to also bring in the food. Sure. <laughs> so how does food figure into your, your kind of sensory experience of the world and then eventually your storytelling? Jillian, do I write a lot about food? No, but you talk a lot about it. I talk, do I? Sure. Well, gather is all about food, right? As, yeah, as well, I guess like food creating the conditions for storytelling. Yeah. I think, you know, with indigenous culture and Northern culture, I you know, always say Northerners are the hobbits of Canada. All we want to do is, <laughs> is feed you, cook for you, bake for you and treat you right and spoil you. The longer you stay, the heavier your arms are with gifts. Oh, that's, that's really Northern culture. And I have a feeling that's Eastern culture as well. Eastern Canada mm -hmm. culture as well. I have a feeling. Oh yeah. So I don't know if you've ever read Trinity's by Nick Toshi's. No, it's a, it's a brutal, brutal book. I read that when I was at UVic and it, it just, it, I'd never read anything so horrendous and it's about triads, but Nick, the late Nick Toshi's, I was very sad when he passed away was so good at writing about food as an escape from the violence and you notice when you read the game of thrones books it is food is always is so beautifully described and i think maybe that you know what what nick did in trinities and what the the um uh game of thrones novels did for me was was give that that greater appreciation maybe in my literary work to start writing about northern cuisine so mm. i'm really glad that you you touched on that and i think the greatest cost of this pandemic is is keeping you know we we have to keep our loved ones away i had to tell my mom who's 70 
not to hop on a plane for my 50th birthday because I love her so much, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's been the great cost is not being able to cook for people or have people in your home. It's, it's who we are. I mean, Mm -hmm. I love cooking for, for people. It's how I show my respect and my love and my adoration and food is medicine. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm really, thank you for saying that. I, it didn't even hit me. In fact, the new novel I'm working on is all about moose nose soup. Mm. I had to learn how to cook moose nose soup. And I was just talking about that with my wife. You know, I'm so grateful for, uh, for the great Henry Beaver who showed me how. Yeah, really, really lucky. Yeah. So wait till you read that. That's, that's a whole different thing. But yeah, okay. there's a lot of cooking in the new book. great (laughs) yeah yeah so how do you think food and gathering facilitates storytelling what do you think are the the sort of ways into storytelling through well basically the scenarios you you sort of play out and gather well Jillian I don't know even how to answer (laughs) that I mean cooking is so much of who we are as northerners and as a family and I think that if you feed somebody so much they can't move (laughs) <laughs> then, you, then you've got them you, you've got them you know what i mean sure yeah, you know more. yeah and yeah they're, they're full, their heart is happy their tummy is warm yeah and then you pepper them with whatever you got <laughs> with beautiful stories and hopefully you you know they give you a whole bunch back too right because mm-hmm. storytelling is so much so much about storytelling is fishing mm-hmm. where i'm going to tell you a good ghost story only because a it's a cool story but b i want you to give me two back Interesting. So really what you're doing is creating the conditions for listening to someone else. Ah, see, Jillian, this is why you're the best. This is why everybody wants to be interviewed. <laughs> it's going to rake you over the coals and you're going to come out a better person. Oh, I hope Love so. This is, <laughs> what a goal. This is, this is either the greatest interview or this is the Stockholm syndrome being Maybe. played out right now where we embrace our captors. Okay? I don't know. Well, it hasn't been long enough. <laughs> we'll just say the greatest interview. No, these are great questions. I just, I'm really stunned that you had picked up on, on the, I didn't realize how much in Gather I had talked about uh, cooking. Yeah. So thank you. Well, it's just so full of joy. And I think I would say this about all of your books, that there is an inherent goodness and a a really decent core to all of your characters and an inherent goodness in the communities that you depict and this sort of genuine desire for people to be together and to help each other out. And I guess that's what came through for me, that you are always sort of on your doorstep in Edmonton, like waiting to hand somebody a meal, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And then the extent, like the sort of byproduct of that is just, you know, the icing on the cake, so to speak, like you get to talk to them and you get to hear about their lives, but it's really just that invitation to listen and to be together that you're extending. Yeah. That's right. Also, if you have an enemy and you're listening, (laughs) now would be the time to step up and, and, and cook for them or take care of their children in a good way or look out for their siblings or do something kind for their parents because we will never forget kindness as, right. as humans. It doesn't matter what's happened. Mm-hmm. Now there's always ways to make reparations and that either is through food, um, kindness, acts of service, et cetera, et cetera. So thank you for saying that. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it really is a standout feature of, of gather. So uh, let's go to some more um, craft oriented questions here. Uh, I was really interested in the ways that you kind of control pacing. Um, I noticed this say in, in night moves where you sort of open with a little figment 
uh, something that draws us in. And then the way you control that and develop it over the course of the story is quite remarkable. You don't ever give it all away. You don't ever lose the reader and bore them. There's this real um, attempt to make sure we stick with you and and see the whole thing through. Is that something you've considered as you're writing, how to control that pacing? Is it something you've worked on? Well, thank you for saying that. So my editors were Maurice Moreau and Katerina DeBacker of uh, Enfield and Vizenti. They they were the ones that really laid the boots to me. Now, uh, here's what usually happens is I will go to a publisher with a collection. Publishers want 40,000 words, it seems, with short story collections, and they want 80,000 words for a novel minimum. Mm-hmm. So when I went to Enfield and Vizenti with Maurice Moreau, um, was I usually went with probably eight or nine of the 14 short stories already published elsewhere because I'm always writing, I'm always doing my own stuff and I'm always sending it out. I still do that to this very day. I get rejected all the time mm. and it, it, it doesn't matter. It's okay. It's all part of it, right? Because mm-hmm. when I send a story out and I'm convinced that this is the greatest thing I've ever written, it, it may not hear for five months and that's good because in that time, I haven't seen that story until it mm-hmm. comes back all marked up or I get an email saying, we're really sorry, but it, it just, it's not what we're looking for or you, you didn't win. And I go, well, okay, that's fine because I have more than enough on my plate. But what that means, Jillian, is for five months, I have not looked at this short story and every single time when I click on it and I open it with a fresh cup of coffee in the morning and I look at it, I go, this is the worst, stupidest, <laughs> stupidest, most hideous thing anyone on this planet has ever carved into anything. This is who, what, what is going on? Were you stoned <laughs> when you wrote this? And, but at least we've got the wet clay and then I can look at it with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's part of my craft as well. That's part of the process because then you keep owning it. I always say writing, you know, writing is rewriting. Absolutely. But I would say writing is like combing tangled hair mm. and you have to keep, going and keep going and keep going and then after a while that person or creature that you're you're combing the hair of they start telling you things Mm. and that's where the magic begins Mm -hmm. that's craft I love that yeah I I, it's very true right like there's this sort of initial burst or explosion of what you think is fabulous writing but that's simply getting the idea down Right. And, and because it's out, it feels like such a relief. (laughs) And so the going back and refining and rethinking is a lot more difficult, but requires that distance and that time. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And it was really, if it wasn't for Maurice Moreau, because don't forget, so Night Moves is, is we have a a trinity. We have a trilogy with Enfield and Vizenta. We've got The Moon Mm -hmm. of Letting Go and Godless but Loyal to Heaven and then Night Moves. Those were three books. Mm-hmm. with Maurice Moreau as my chief editor and mm. I was terrified of him he is a surgeon he is this warrior poet and if I could make him happy then I was happy again with the Stockholm syndrome do you know what mm-hmm. I mean mm-hmm. uh, utmost respect to him and then Katerina caught up many things that we'd all missed in terms of continuity so when you have that right editor it doesn't matter if you're with a smaller or an independent or with the biggest publishing when you find the right editorial team, you take your craft and you take your abilities 
to levels that you could never even imagine. Mm-hmm. And that's the gift of the great editor. It's the editors who make us great writers. Sure, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. If it wasn't for Barbara Pulling, I mean, she and Cheryl Cohen, who was the former books editor at the Global Mail, they went through Moxon Square Gardens. And when you look at it, I mean, I think nine of those stories were already published elsewhere. It didn't matter to them. Even mm-hmm. if you could say, what are you talking about? This was a, this one, the so-and-so prize. That was then, this is now. And I do have to say something because if I don't, I'm going to forget it. And I was thinking about, this is something for everybody listening. I had a, I've had many great teachings. Every book that I've done, there's always this, this big aha that I want to pass on to others. So let's talk about Angel Wing Splash Pattern, my very first short story collection, which just turned 20. We've got a new 20th anniversary edition out there with, with a new intro and uh, two comic books inside. Um, yeah, we're really proud. It was a beautiful new cover. Anyways, so when I went with Tegadons, so let's go back to Douglas McIntyre. So, so Lesser Bus comes out in 1996, and I say to Scott McIntyre several months after it comes out, I said, Scott, we were in Vancouver. I said, um, listen, I've got an incredible, it's dark, it's gothic, it's, it's spiritually terrifying. I've got this incredible collection called Angel Wing Splash Pattern. And he goes, did you say short story collection? I said, yes. He goes, no, you can take it elsewhere, Rich. They, they, they don't sell. There's nothing personal. We want the novel. Mm-hmm. Canada loves the novel. I'm like, but did you hear the saying? I wrote a novel because I didn't have time to write a short story. He's like, <laughs> but no, that don't even, that, no, you don't deal with marketers, Richard. And that was when chapters was just starting. And if you'll recall, right. the, the problem with chapters was, was they would inhale if you were, if there was any attention on you, they would order 7,500 copies of your book. Mm-hmm. And if it didn't st- sell out in three days, they'd ship them all back. And books don't travel well. So let's mm-hmm. say 2,000 of those books were damaged back and forth. Suddenly, your publisher has already gone into another print run because all the warehouses were, were emptied of your work. So by the time the barge arrives two months later, you have... 5,000 copies of books that were already mailed. You have 2,000 damaged copies. And guess what? Because of the hype, they ordered another 7,500. So suddenly you have 14,500 copies of your book in a warehouse, 2,000 of which, which are damaged. And the writer is the bad person mm-hmm. because you've of cost course. the publisher all this money. Yeah. That was, that was the big problem. So I understand where Mr. McIntyre was coming from. Utmost respect to Scott. So he said, you, you can take this anywhere else, Richard. We're not doing shorts. We've done it, and they just don't sell. They don't go anywhere. And I was, I was crying into my, uh, my iced tea in Australia. Um, Kateriaku Enzi Dam of Kegadon's Press flew me there uh, to promote an anthology called Skins. So we're mm-hmm. in Sydney, Australia, one of the most beautiful apartments in the world. And I'm saying, Douglas and McIntyre won't publish my new short story collection. I can't believe it. And he, she's like, what are you talking about? And I said, I've got like the greatest. It's, it's like this 14 story stories, which are spiritual thrillers and it's dark and it's gothic. And it's incredible. It's kind of insane, actually, lyrically. And she goes, well, I'll publish it. I was like, what? <laughs> what do you think we're here? I flew, I flew you to freaking Sydney, Australia, Richard. Why do you think you're here? And we'd published Mermaids in Skins, the anthology. And she goes, is, is Mermaids in Angel Wing? I said, yeah, it's the opening. She goes, I love Torchy. Let's publish Torchy and anybody else. So here's the teaching that the great Kateriako Enzi Dam of Kegadon's Press gave me. So Angel Wing Splash Pattern originally started as 14 short stories. 
let's say five of them were already published. She chose nine. And suddenly we, we were supposed to have this big honking Bukowski short story collection. And it came out as this slender volume. It's probably the same size as the Lester Blast. Mm. And I don't know if you ever heard Tiny Dynamine Echoes in a Shallow Bay by the Cocteau Twins. Mm, this, yeah, this was yeah. this was that album, but from the Northwest Territories, if that makes any sense. Of course. In, in terms <laughs> of, of just the pageantry and the magic and the darkness and again, that wonder. Yeah. And I remember when she sent me back the manuscript and, and you know, there were only nine stories, five were gone and five, the five that were published ended up being in night rooms. Hmm. And I said, Cattery, what are you, in those days before the internet, I had to call her, I'm like, Cattery, what are you doing to me? You're castrating a bull. I gave you 14. <laughs> and she goes, Richard, Richard, I'm going to tell you something. She goes, short story collections should be a garden for the reader to walk through. There should be something in there in every short story that isn't in any other. So let's talk about theme. She says, you have two father-son stories in Angel Wing. You're actually hitting two of the same nails and, and we don't want that. Hmm. Save the other father-son story for the next collection. They're hmm. beautiful stories, Richard. We're, we're lucky enough that we get what we consider the one that is the most evocative and most touching. Mm-hmm. So you have to really take into consideration theme in your collections. And this is Angel Wing Splash Pattern. These are the stories that, that matter to Renee, Abram, and myself. And, and that's that. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I, she gave me a PhD. And that's why when you read everything from Moccasin Square Gardens to the Moon of Letting Go, or Godless Below the Heaven or Night Moves, You've got We To Go War stories in there. You've got the contract story with Bear Wanting Revenge. You've got you know, mm-hmm. Torchy, Sven, Benny the Bank. You've got new characters. Uh, you've got Devotion. You've got, you know, as I count myself among them. Um, you've got all these mysterious stories because I always remember that every one of my short story collections, I want it to be a garden. I want it to be an incredibly sensual experience where you're shocked, you're blushing, there's romance, there's tragedy, there's horror. I want it to be something unlike any other collection, really, that anybody else is doing. And I don't know if I'm, I can't compare myself to anybody else. I just, I want it to be really beautiful and surprising, mm-hmm. refreshing. Mm-hmm. And it is. And the way it draws you in, like I was saying before, right? It's you, you have this way of kind of lulling the reader in and then you know, it's almost dropping bombs, but not in a way that's, that's, uh, you know, surprising necessarily. It's just sort of like, oh, okay, I've got to keep reading, right? There's just these moments that keep you going through the collection very quickly, which is interesting for short stories that, you know, the way they're sort of packaged and sold to us is you can read this quickly, or you can read this in fragments. And, and yet they kind of read like novels to me. Um, so it is interesting that, that, you know, you've controlled that, uh, that pacing with your editors in that way. What's the process like when, um, you have several of the stories already published or, or that have won contests, how does that process go as far as getting permission to reprint them and, and revisiting them after they've had that kind of response from, um, publications and your audience? Well, I'm represented now not only by Carolyn Swayze, but by Janine Cheeseman of Aurora Artists and Tracy Essex Simpson of Aurora Artists. So we've never had a problem yet in terms of, of getting permission to republish. I think that any, whether it's Prairie Fire or 
exile editions, they're usually very honored that they were the first to publish this short story or this poem. And then we do have to legally receive permission. So often what happens is when you publish in an anthology, they will say, you're not allowed to have this republished for one or two years. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I get my act together and we get a collection together, it's very rare we've ever had to go to somebody and say, hey, so we've got you know a collection of short stories coming out and we're 17,000 words short. Uh, would it be okay? And of course, we're, we will give you full credit. We, they've always say yes. Mm -hmm. They see what we're up to. And I think that if anything, it's great for everybody because ultimately, if you like the We To Go War story in here from Exile Editions, this one, chances are you're going to want to read what everybody else was working on in that specific collection. Hmm. It, it really is. And so I find that even because I work with 13 different publishers, often I'm, I have to get in touch with them to work with somebody else. Everybody knows everybody. Mm -hmm. So if I say, hey, uh, we need this short story from you know this collection that we did in this anthology a long time ago, I know that this character's here. They, they, I, I can't remember a time we were, we were ever, ever told, no, it's always about the permission. It's always about the respect. And mm -hmm. things always take so much longer anyhow. And everyone starts to understand that you're doing great work and you're, you know, when, when, if, when Gather succeeds or Moccasin Square Garden succeeds, the backlist also succeeds because, of course, I mean, Jillian, you weren't reading me two years ago, but there you go. now that you've read whatever you've read, chances mm -hmm. are you're going to be tracking down maybe a blanket of butterflies or mm -hmm. whistle or, you know, anything else we did with Pearson Canada. And then boom, when the other books come out, uh, with the We To Go War series, you'll say, ah, I remember reading that short story in, in Godless or Night Moves or The Moon Let It Go. And now I see Dove again. And, you know, mm -hmm. please know that all the short story collections, all five of them, they're all linked. They're all related. The characters like Bear show up in different parts. And that's mm -hmm. another thing that I wanted where people would sit up and go, like, I remember a long time ago, I was flying somewhere overseas. And I remember listening to the new Crystal Castles album. And I remember we were 30,000 feet over some ocean somewhere. And it was two in the morning. I was the only one awake on this plane. And I was listening to the new Crystal Castle. And they did a remake of Not in Love by Platinum Blonde. And they did oh, such yeah. a beautiful, they did such a beautiful, I don't know if you've heard it, it's on YouTube. And then Robert Smith sang it as well to that beat. Anyways, I remember sitting up and wanting to yell top <laughs> my lungs, Crystal Castles just did a remake of not in Love by Platinum Blonde, which I was listening to in grade eight in Fort Smith Northwest Territories. And I think it's one of the greatest songs ever to this day. That's what I want you to experience where you go, oh my God, Bears Back or, you know, Denny Cho in Super Indians and Marcus, Marcus in Square Gardens, who plays a very cruel and funny trick on, on a very lazy leader. He's actually the star of the journey forward when we play our drums, they sing. So he's 13 there. And yet you get to see him as a, you know, this college um, shoegazer who wants more <laughs> for his community and that's the fun that I'm having where and I and I think that in terms of craft for everyone who's listening when you when you haven't sold it yet and you haven't shown it to anybody th that is the sweet spot mm -hmm. it, it's it's your time to cultivate yes. voice and 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 really dive in and take us where you want to take us and then when you meet the right editorial team who's ex really excited about what you're creating, that's, that's the stuff. It's when you have 
18 books out and you've signed a deal and you need to come up with two more and mm -hmm. you're scrambling, right. that's, that's when you're, you can get into a lot of trouble that way because yeah. you can't pull this out of thin air. I don't care who you are. It, it, mm -hmm. It'll always come down to, you know, Ivan Coyote said, it will always come down to AIC. It will always come down to acid chair. You've mm -hmm. got to do, this is soul work. Yeah. You've got to mind deeply for it to matter. So let's get back to the King of Jam Sandwiches by Eric Walters. He says, you know, of the hundred books plus that he has out in the world, this is his most personal. And mm -hmm. that's why it connects with everybody. That's mm -hmm. why it connects with everybody. You, you've got to dive deep. It has to be your heart on a page. It has to be your heartbreak on a page. It has to be your hope on a page. It has to be your soul wish on a page. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you're dealing with that kind of alchemy, and, and this is the blood, sweat, and tears, and there's nothing left. Remember how Robert Smith always says, this is our last album, we're breaking up after this? <laughs> yeah. And then four years later, <laughs> not, you have to be at that point where you say, I got nothing. This is the be all end all. And yeah. then craft sooner or later, will pick you up. If you're lucky, we'll pick you mm -hmm. up, dust you off and say, we're not done with you yet. You got to tell the secret behind this story, or you got to tell this mm -hmm. story in a new way, or, or where is this character five years from now? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so great to hear because I think so many of us right now are stuck in, in like sort of what I, I and my partner always call a lack of inputs, right? We need to be out in the world. We need to be seeing other people, seeing things happen, observing. That's what we writers do. And so without those inputs, then how do we sort of buckle down and get something written? And that as in chair starts to feel really bad you know, because it's mm -hmm. the same thing day after day after day. But I love this idea that you're actually just going back to your true artist self, that you're not thinking about appealing to a publisher, appealing to an agent, selling copies. You're thinking about the thing that you really still need to say. And that can get you sitting down and typing again. Mm -hmm. You just have to be willing to go back there, you know? Yes, Jillian. I also, I, I really do feel that there are a lot of people who are publishing now who are not reading yeah, talk more about that. Well, it's just I'm, I've read a couple of poetry uh, books that are out now, and I, I hate to say it, but Christos already said it in 1991 in Not Vanishing, published mm -hmm. by Press Gang. Christos said this, and, and unless you're reading everything in your arena, you're kind of walking in some pretty big footsteps. Mm -hmm. So once you read Christos and once you read fill in the blank and, and, you know, the living treasures amongst us, mm -hmm. see what they've done and, and do that, but do it your own way. Right. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm just not seeing the, the, I'm not seeing now. I don't read a lot of poetry, uh, but to be honest, what I've read recently, I'm like, I just mm. don't think you're reading. I really just don't think you're reading. I think mm. you, I think you're listening, and I, I appreciate what you're doing. But read not vanishing. That is that's the treasure. That's where she broke the human language, much like Eden Robinson in Son of a Trickster. She mm -hmm. broke the human language and rebuilt it and forged it her own beautiful way. Mm -hmm. that, those are two living treasures right now, Christos and Eden Robinson. And mm -hmm. in fact, I'll say that I always have said that you know Son of a Trickster and not vanishing those are the, the works that we all need to hold ourselves up to. If you're not mm. on that level, you're not on that level. Right. You want yeah. to be that good. You want to be that good where you earn every single word. So lesser blessed, mm. they lost the plates, whatever that means. So the book came out in 1996. So 20 years later, we're, we're getting ready to do a new edition with a new cover. 
Mm -hmm. and we're going to put in some extra content like two new short stories and you know we're working with you know anna comfort o'keefe who's the new publisher of douglas and mcintyre and she says we actually lost richard it, it's all gone we can't find the original plates i'm like oh my god she said don't worry about it we'll just pay a lot somebody a lot of money to type out the entire manuscript and we'll send it to you so this is your chance 20 years later if you want to change any wording or you want to change a semicolon to a colon i said great so they sent it to me and i had i think a month and so I hadn't read my own novel in 17 years mm -hmm. or Larry's novel, really Larry Soul's novel. And so I sit down and I go through it. I think I, I slotted 50 pages a day just to go through it, to try and find anything. I didn't change a word. Really? I didn't change, I didn't change a, a comma, a colon, because in the five years, yeah. I'd earned every single word. Mm -hmm. It took mm -hmm. five years to hone it. Right. That's where you want to be in your craft, mm -hmm. where you're honing it. And you know that this is bigger than what you realize, what you wanted, where you where, where it's taking you. Like we're we're finishing book two of A Blanket of Butterflies right now. The series is going to be called The Spirit of Denon Day. Book mm. two is called As I Unfold You in Petals. And you get to see Torchy and Flinch and Benny the Bank, but you get to meet a new character named Runt. <laughs> and when I look at the manuscript that I submitted originally to the publisher and where, what we're working on now, there's no comparison. Mm -hmm. I, what I sent them as a pitch was an idea. Interesting. Well, what we have now is a fully formed universe that is colliding. And I, I, and I started saying, you know, you know, conflict reveals character. And Chris Labonte, when he was the publisher of Douglas McIntyre, said, Richard, this is in my line. But I'm gonna I'm gonna share it with you anyways. All great literature is about a compelling character who has a problem. Mm -hmm. And I would take that even further and say, your job as a writer is to decide who stands in your compelling protagonist's way and who helps your character with their problem. But mm. here's where I thought of something. I think writing and storytelling and literature is about is about the perfect collision of universes. But I'm gonna take that because I've revised it, I've tweaked it. I've combed the tangled hair of this. And that is great literature is about the imperfect collision of universes. Ah. And, and you are witness to that imperfect collision and you've got to see where everything crumbles and what's spinning after the impact. Mm -hmm. That's where it begins. Mm -hmm. and how it gets trying to put up. it all back together yeah or, right. or leave it if it can't hold its own weight let it be sure sure of course so like going back to this idea of of earning every word and reading to sort of elevate your own writing to a level that you aspire to and going back to this idea of music fueling what you're doing would you agree that listening to the bad music and waiting through the bad music to get to the good songs and also reading the bad literature and of course bad is subjective but you know going through those bad things is also useful that you shouldn't Absolutely. just be reading the greats yeah yes and jillian just to echo what you were saying with you and your your partner feeling stuck i really feel writers and artists need to to do huge soul inhales mm -hmm. so watch everything read everything ask everything listen everything because you 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 have to fill your own love cup right mm -hmm. and yeah you know it's like eden robinson said sometimes it's it's a typo in a menu or it's bad perfume thirty thousand feet 
on an airplane over the Pacific, or it's a snippet of conversation, that's what can get you onto the page, back to the page with years of, of filtering and holding right. for a story. And, and just, you've got to be ready because you could say something in this interview where I can call my publisher tomorrow and say, I need one more page. I need one more page. There's this, <laughs> there's this strange, startling little line, which I know would fit, you know, that Crow would say. And then of course I would call yep. you and say, listen, Jillian, I kind of need a favor. You know what you said in the interview. And I give <laughs> that line to Crow because it's about permission. And I think that you want right, to talk right. to me about permission because we yeah. do a lot of this. Yeah, let's talk about that. So, sure. uh, you know, I mean, in, in Gather, you're talking a lot about being with your community and in particular, you know, the years you spent driving the bus and talking to elders as they went on their trips to physiotherapy and things like that and hearing their stories and then kind of bringing their stories to your audience. So, so how do you think about sharing those stories? How do you go about getting permission and, and be paying proper attribution and that sort of thing. Like this must be an ongoing concern for you. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I noticed about probably 10 years ago that, that writers were being held accountable to their sources. Mm -hmm. And I've always been lucky because I come from such a small community and so many of my, my network and, and my go-to people, my, my knowledge keepers and elders are still with us. So I think it was probably gather was where we actually had to do contracts so gather mm -hmm. the new book on storytelling from the university of regina press i wanted to get uh thompson highway's miracle story of falling down a flight of stairs and being right. you know cradled and caught by four angels i wanted to get his permission and so the university of regina press came up with a permissions contract and, and also I paid everybody myself for permission to be in gather. And that's really important. I sent them all contributor copies. Mm -hmm. And so I've always said that, and you can read this and gather that if you're going to go to somebody, um, you know, show up with gifts, honor them, uh, pay them. You know, there's a lot of grandparents who are raising their grandbabies all on themselves, all by themselves with limited income. Mm -hmm. So, you know, money does buy time and if if i show up with 200 dollars for you know for permission to tell you a story please know that there are more gifts coming mm -hmm. so and and the i was just saying to a friend the difference between being a writer is you know i was at a nickelback concert years ago here in edmonton and nobody would sit down and i was in the nosebleeds and I was like, really? You're all, Chad just said, we're going to be here for three hours. So we're, really, we're going to stand? And nobody was paying attention to me. And, and I said to this gentleman to my left, who he's a big guy, big guy. He was wearing uh, cowboy boots and uh, coveralls, chewing snuff. And I looked at him, I said, can you believe this? I felt like the guy from uh, Curb, Your Enthusiasm. Curb Your Enthusiasm. I'm like, really? I said, can you believe this? None of these people are going to sit down. We're going to be here for three hours. Can you believe this? <laughs> three hours, we got to stand. Wait, I, I, sound, I sound like Seinfeld. Anyways, so he looks at me and he stands up and joins me in solidarity because he knows that he wants to see the band too. And he goes, well, this is going to be about as much fun as a gut full of pinworms, right? <laughs> and I don't remember, frankly, a lot of that concert because I was too busy in awe with that line. 
and that's actually right. how I wrote Godless but Loyal to Heaven. That's Torchy's <laughs> first line as he, he, as he prepares <laughs> to save the town, whether he realizes it or not. And so the difference with literature, in my opinion, was I don't know this gentleman. He and I never exchanged numbers after the great Nickelback concert of 1998. Uh, but I, to, if you, if he's listening, I owe him my everything because that was the million dollar line that, that got me into the story. And it's, right. it's a one, you know, one in a, a trillion that, that this would happen. But I don't, I don't, because I don't know him, I, I don't, I don't owe him. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to storytelling, when I go to somebody, uh, and in fact, I want to do another book of my favorite stories in the world that haven't been written down yet. When I go to people, it's always with gifts and money. And now it has to be a contract because mm-hmm. you're only stronger when somebody stands at your book launch or your movie premiere and, and they say, who gave you the right to tell that story? Mm-hmm. How dare you tell that story about our culture or my family you're only stronger when you say well actually i'm glad you asked because with us in the audience is rosa mantla dr leslie saxon cleacho elder terry naskin who told me about the yabati and then they stand and wave and then that person goes this is how it's done folks right. this person has has paid this person has permission because you never want to get it wrong and so mm-hmm. i always say especially to indigenous you know artists expect to be called on your your protocol and and so you're only stronger when at the end you know if you look at the back of the last couple of books i put out i always thank the knowledge keepers because we've Mm -hmm. gone to them directly um you know no publisher wants to get sued i don't want to get sued i don't want to be ridiculed you know a friend of mine was uh at a a gathering years ago and there was a, a storyteller up on stage talking about culture and uh, the look that this other guy gave him was that this person is a fraud. This is, we don't know him. We don't know where he's gotten all this. I've never heard these stories. Hmm. Th- these are our stories, but, but, but he's got it all wrong. You never want to be that. I'd r- much rather be, I, I've been given permission to showcase these stories from these elders. And, and that's the way it really should be done. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So let me ask you a follow-up question to that because you work across multiple genres. You're a a baby book author, a children's book author, a graphic novelist. You are writing in both fiction and nonfiction. So where do you draw the line when it comes to fictionalizing those things that you encounter in real life? Like how much distance do you need between the actual thing that happened in real life and the way you write about it. Do you have a rule that you follow all the time? Do you have like a, you know, a certain amount of things that should be changed? Um, are you always just working in that way of like taking one line of inspiration? Cause it does feel like some of your work is autobiographical or biographical, right? I think, I think it has to be autobiographical. I think that, you know, my mind, I mean, I'll be 50 tomorrow. My mind has been playing tricks on me for years usually what happens is i will you know there's certain things that haunt me from the northwest territory certain things that haunt me from fort smith mm-hmm. and those things have really never left and i i really do employ my characters i call them my gladiators to go back to that haunting mm-hmm. and and flesh it out so 
when you read the contract, you have Bear showing up with his grandfather's bone knife because he wants to either maim or seriously injure the principal for molesting his cousin. Mm-hmm. And that's based on something that happened in our community. It was, certainly wasn't one of our principals, uh, but it was a trusted community member. And that was for a reason because I've never, I've never understood that whole chain of events that happened. Mm-hmm. And when you have the contract and you have Bear with that, that shock and awe and surprise and heartbreak that, that someone that the community trusted especially with the cousin who's developmentally delayed it it was i made up my mind that it didn't have to have an answer mm. this this story did not have to have an answer that we could rest in the heartbreak of it all because we've all been betrayed by community members leaders maybe family members and and i always say to people it's okay if there isn't a bow at the end sometimes mm. a, a a short story it's like a knife through the ribs. It's like a knife stab through the ribs. It's meant to open you up. And then in the next book, we have Love Walked In, where another gentleman who was a part of calling social services on this community member is actually ostracized. And, and then he finds love in this beautiful short story called Love Walked In. And then you have Godless But Loyal to Heaven, where Torchy and Sven show up to deal with the abuser. And then you have Feeding the Fire, with what happens after, and then you have Blood Rides the Wind, where Bear at the end is given the ultimate teaching by a, a community member who, who teaches him really that, and this is a line that Gary Godfordson shared with me years ago, and he said, there's man's way, there's God's way, and there's the Indian way. Hmm. And I, I just thought that was so perfect for, for what needed to happen for the community at the very end. So, so that is a, a four short story journey through my heartbreak of, of what happened and my disbelief that this happened. And I always say, you know, writing, and I'm not the only one, I think Jeanette Armstrong and Maurice Kenny probably said this in 1991 at the American Center, that writing really is the best therapy that, mm-hmm. you know, and it was Lee Miracle who said the beauty of fiction is you can find in your life what has been stolen. You can mend in your life what has been broken. You can mm-hmm. resurrect the dead with your writing. And, and wow. those, those words were what gave me wings as a writer. And I've been doing that ever since, mending mm-hmm. my, my heart with, with certain things that have happened. And maybe that's what The Lesser Blessed was all about, just mending my heart over, over my cousin's suicide. You know, mm-hmm. when you look back, when you do the autopsy on my life, you go, oh, these were the stories that he needed to, to process and let go and, 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 and mourn what happened. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. What is it like working with others? Um, Let's say you turn something into a graphic novel, or you have an idea for a graphic novel. What is your relationship like with the artist? And and how does that progress? Well, I I had a good teaching from Harriet Romer. So we have two children's books out with children's book press. Uh, The great George Littlechild was the artist. He says that I write his books. And, and I've always said he's the artist for our books because I was his biggest fan growing up. But um, Harriet Romer, this, we wrote A Man Called Raven and What's the Most Beautiful Thing you know About Horses just before the internet really opened up. And I remember I wanted, I had a lot of ideas for how A Man Called Raven could look and should look because I'm Dene, I'm from the Northwest Territories, I'm a Fort Smither. 
George's Cree from Musquachis in Alberta, living in British Columbia at the time in Vancouver. And I just was really cognizant that, you know, in the North, we keep our hair short for the most part. We, we look different from the Cree that, that he is. And I wanted to be respectful to, you know, our landscape because we're not from the prairies. And Harriet Romer, just my publisher said, you're not calling him. I'm not giving you his address. You're not to call him, leave him alone. And she said, Richard, and I remember this, it was clear as day, it was a phone call. It was, I think it was 40 below in Fort Smith and it was snowing. She said, Richard, your job as the writer is done. You are doing what you were born to do. It's time to let George Littlechild do what he was born to do. He said, she said, collaborating is a dance of trust, Richard. Let go. And, and the books are absolutely beautiful. And I'm so grateful Lee and Lowe chose to republish them when, when Children's Book Press uh, was bought out. Uh, and we're working on, the, I think, the 20th or 25th anniversary of both books right now because la the language needs to be changed. Mm -hmm. You know, what parents were doing 20 years ago is a whole lot different than what we're doing now. But um, two quick stories about collaborating in terms of comic books and graphic novels is I have an incredible comic book out with Steve Sanderson, who's Cree. It's called Path of the Warrior. We gave 20,000 copies away uh, all over British Columbia because gang violence, of course, is on the rise. And when I handed Steve the, the script that I, I wrote, I remember he, we were in a, the Dutch Pancake House on Cambian 16th across from the old Blockbuster. And he, he'd read it and he, he basically threw it back at me across the table and said, I'm not doing this. And I said, <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean you're not doing this, dude? And I'm buying, I'm buying, I'm buying breakfast. And he said, no, no, no. Because he'd already worked on Ed, Ed, and Eddie with, for the Cartoon Network. And he was starting to get involved with them. Um, Oh, Teen Avengers, I think Teen Transformers. And he already had, I think he has 10 comic books out with the, the Healthy Aboriginal Network. So he had lived and breathed comics for years. And he says, Richard, they're only giving us 42 pages. And he says, open it up. I've crossed out a lot of stuff that we don't need. And what I learned in that breakfast was that comic book artists and illustrators have to be masters of efficiency because you're only dealing with five or six panels on a page and if the publisher says we only have money for 42 pages that's it folks that's the real estate we're working with and so i learned that a be open be open to what your editors are saying and what your publisher is saying but when the artist speaks up because i have the easy job i just have to think of the story when your your illustrator and your artist speak up or your colorists or your letterers when they have a better idea that really you have to listen to them because they know what they're doing. This is, this is their job, right? This is their, their calling. This is all they do. And I've, I've never, we've never gone and incorporated something only to realize down the road that that was a terrible mistake. It was, it's, this is a very much a group effort. And it's actually the group that actually takes the story to the level, not just your editor, it's the colorist, it's the letterer, it's it's your it's your illustrator and i'm so grateful so when you looked at a blanket of butterflies that great splash page of shinobu fighting torchy and flinch mm -hmm. so i was such a huge fan of the original old boy and that big famous subway scene with the martial arts and the hammer i think i'd written six pages of various forms of fighting techniques because i wanted to show how good Torchy and Sven were, but they'd never faced somebody equally as good and better as Shinobu. 
And I remember Scott sent me this email. He was very polite, Mr. Scott Henderson. Uh, and he said, uh, we can't do the six pages, Richard, because I think we only have 48 pages for this, but I have an idea and I'm just gonna send the thumbnails in the morning. And working with Scott is great. Working with any artist that I get to work with is great because I'm a huge fan first. And the beautiful thing about Scott is he only works at night. So I go to bed, I become pre-verbal at about eight. <laughs> uh, you know, because I, I get up at four, four thirty, or five to get my work done. Yeah. And so when I wake up in the morning, there's all these files, these huge files from Scott Henderson, and he had made the splash page in which he'd done this detailed version of Shinobu fighting Torchy and and Sven, and then in the background you have about eighteen different snapshots of the fighting, and that he did that in two pages. That's wow. the, the quickest example of of a way that somebody stepped up and said we're not doing what you want to do we're going to do this my way and mm -hmm. and i think this is better i understand what you want to do i'm just going to do this easier visually for everybody and it's i'm in awe every time i see that i'm like that's scott henderson that's mm -hmm. why everybody that's why he's booked two years in advance yeah <laughs> wow boy what a process But you do have some tips for us. So these are, I think these are my five writing tips uh, by Richard Van Camp. Uh, proud author, proud husband, proud father. Author of 26 books in 26 years, working with 13 different publishers, two agency houses. Number one, never be afraid to ask for more time with your editors and publishers. So I'll, let me give you an example. A long time ago, uh, Tanya Martin, publisher and CEO of McKellar and Martin, called me and she said, Richard Van Camp. Tanya Martin. And I said, hello, Tanya. And she said, listen, I think next year is going to be about reconciliation. I want you to write a book on reconciliation. I want your main character to be in grade five. I want him to be 13. So there can be no swearing, no drugs, no violence, no drinking. This has got to be about the effects of residential school. And it has to be about what reconciliation means to this young person. And I'm thinking 23,000 words and you have five months and I'll get in touch with your agent. We'll make a deal. What do you say? I'm like, uh, yeah, hello, let's do this. So she said, oh, by the way, it's going to be a flip book. So you read it and then you flip it and there's going to be another novella on the other side. And Monique Graysmith, your friend, has already agreed to do the other side and she's already got the title. It's called Lucy and Lola. It's going to be about two girls, two young ladies who are twins. They spend the summer with their grandmother and they learn about residential schools and they see how hard their mother is doing as she writes the bar exam for her law school application. And as she was talking, I knew exactly the story I wanted to write. And I said, well, I'll, I'll beat Minnie Grace Smith as a Virgo. I'm very competitive and uh, I know exactly <laughs> the story I want to write. So I wrote the, the novel or the novella in probably two months, sent it in early. We were working on edits and she was like, this is, this is fantastic. Monique's still working on her. She needs more time. She's doing research. And then I went into somebody's office and they had a mug that said world's greatest dad. And I went, oh, oh dear. Because I realized, Jillian, that I had told the story. I hadn't earned the story from the character's point of view. Hmm. I, I satisfied the assignment, but there was really, it was safe. And I didn't want this to be safe for the main character, Denny Cho. So the story goes that this 
Denicho is not happy with his school. He's not happy with what he's not learning. He wants to be outside. He wants to be hearing from the elders. He wants to understand more about residential schools, which is not in the curriculum. And then one day he goes into the principal's office again. He's a problem student again. And he's going toe to toe with the principal about what the school isn't doing for him. And Denicho has lost his father. And he sees the principal drinking out of a mug that says world's greatest dad. And that's what breaks his heart. And he actually breaks down crying in the principal's office. And the principal who's gone toe to toe with Denicho for years, finally sees this wounded little boy in his office. And he starts to understand this is part of why Denicho isn't happy. He, he's, he's hurting, he's afraid, he's alone. And this is where the principal, because I've, I've done the bad principal story in the lesser blessed and, and the, the bad teacher story. I've done that mm -hmm. in the contract. What if this was a principal who finally says, you know what, Denicho? Why don't I give you three days off, excused absence. You go and you bring back the elders and the knowledge keepers and you give a presentation in the staff room on Friday with whoever you want. And you show us what this community needs. You show us what the students need. You show us what the educators need. And we're going to listen. And whatever you say with the elders that you choose, we will incorporate to the best of our ability. This is, it actually breaks the principal's heart too. And I had to call Tanya and said, Tanya, I'm going to need a lot more time to do this right. And she said, great, as much time as you need. Hmm. And, and so I found that every time I've had to step up to an editor or a publisher and say, I need more time, uh, a character just told me something, um, I've, they've, always made, they've always been so accommodating because I think they see that, that he's so in it now. This is, this is the sweet spot. This is where you need to be, where your characters are actually telling you how the story is going to go now. Mm -hmm. You've made this a safe place for them to step up and, and really share their truths. Hmm. Mm hmm. Number two, take responsibility for your craft. You have to make time for it. So I get up at four or four thirty in every morning when I'm under deadline. My family supports me completely. They know that Daddy's working. My door is closed. I, I figured out my process, and it's taken twenty six years to do it properly, and really stepping up and and letting the universe know that I am here. I am ready. I am open. I'm, I'm reading, I'm watching, I'm asking, I'm listening, I'm filtering, I'm doing the good soul work here. Uh, please grace me with another story or please grace me, grace me with more of this story. Give me those million dollar lines. Like this is going to be about as much fun as a gut full of pinworms. I'll take <laughs> a thousand of those turn it into something special. Uh, become the story. Um, I really feel that if you're muttering to yourself and you're walking and you're acting out scenes, this is good. This is all part of the process. Um, I think that you should, if you are writing to music, if you know that you're the best writer, um, really embrace that. So I don't know if I'm repeating the same thing, but trust the process, call the process, be open to the process, do what you need to do, but ultimately take responsibility for your craft. Because a long time ago, I was, I was really hurting and I went to Victoria 
I took Bill Valgridson, one of my mentors. He wrote one of the greatest books of our time. It's called The Girl with the Botticelli Face, published by Douglas and McIntyre. Uh, I love Bill Valgridson. I was really proud to invite him up to Yellowknife to the Northwoods Writers Festival years ago. Uh, I'm in awe of everything that he does. And he looked at me, I think he could tell life had kind of kicked me in the nuts. And he said, you know what you got, Van Camp? You got craft. <laughs> really? You think so? And he goes, yes. It goes, I see it. I could see it in class. You know, you're working on your first book deal with, with Douglas and McIntyre. They're a great publisher. This is before The Lesser Bus came out. And he said, let me tell you something about craft. He said, craft, you have what the whole world wants. You have craft and you have a voice and your craft will carry you through everything for whatever is coming next. It'll carry you through the death of a loved one. It'll carry you through a divorce. It'll carry you through cancer. You will always have your craft, Richard. So invest in that craft. You're a student of the craft. You will always be a student of the craft. Admit your helplessness, Richard, because you have craft <laughs> and you show up and you do your best and you honor this precious gift of yours because everybody wants to be a writer. Everybody wants to write a book. Not everybody can, Richard. He goes, you can because you have craft. And I really appreciated that. And he said, you know, he has been right. Craft has carried me through a lot and will continue to carry me for the rest of my life. I will always be a student to craft. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And we I all feel need we did to some be... good work, Jillian. Yeah. I feel we did some good work here. I do too. I think we all need to be I didn't lie to you once, craft. I don't think. This is good. I'm trying to be a better person. <laughs> this is a nonfiction podcast, so I hope not. <laughs> I'm all tell. We'll see. We'll see in the comment section. Like, yeah, I don't there know about go. this guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was just... see this fan camp fella. <laughs> it was such a treat to talk to you after reading so much of your work. It's just so nice to actually hear your voice. It's been in my head for a while now. So this has been nurturing and wonderful for me. Thank you so much for giving us my your time. My pleasure. Well, it is a privilege to be called and it's a privilege to be interviewed. And I really want to thank you for doing, you know, all the reading that you've done. And the, I mean, these questions, you sent them to me and I looked at them. I went, whoa, 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 what's going on here? I'm dealing with the triple threat over here. You're a heavy hitter. <laughs> I have and three I questions. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? I'm just going to end with this. I really want to honor the late and great Richard Wagamese. If you go on YouTube mm -hmm. and you enter Richard Wagamese, Richard Van Camp, You'll see the most beautiful recording it was professionally recorded the night he came to Edmonton years ago. Uh, Indian Horse was the official book uh, chosen by McEwen University. I was lucky enough to be their writer in residence. So they asked me to interview Richard when he came to town. He was on fire that night. He was, I mean, you watch it. Go ahead. Just Google it. Face, you know, YouTube it. Richard Wagamese, Richard Van Camp, McEwen University or Indian Horse. It'll take you right there. It's about an hour and a half. And you want to see him after a day of record collecting, after a day of walking, after a day of yoga. He was just like a breath of fresh air for everybody. It was just, everybody, to this day, people are still talking. Do you remember the night Richard Wagon? I said, I was there. I think, <laughs> I mean, I, I just, it was such a gift. And no one, I mean, we were all so shocked when, when we lost him. I think it was probably eight or nine months later, you know. Uh, it, I'm so glad that we have this. We can always, we will always have this. And I remember when we went for supper before the evening, which you get to watch, 
I said, Richard, I've got, as a Virgo, I have about 20 questions here that I'd like to ask you. And he said, no, he was eating. He said, no, I don't want to see him. I wasn't surprised <laughs> me. Surprise me, Richard. I, there better be stuff in there that nobody's ever asked me before. I said, oh, there is. There is, Richard. There is. And I don't think there was. I think he was very courteous and very generous. But when I had a little snapshot and I, I took a glimpse at the questions you were going to ask me, I started sweating bullets. I was like, this is, this is like, you're, you're asking the good, hard questions about the soul work of writing. And I thank you. Oh, thank you. That's very kind, especially from someone I admire so much. It means oh, a lot. Oh, Thank you very much, Jillian. Thank okay, you. Everybody. Happy writing. And remember what Carolyn Swayze says, page a day is a book a year. Page a day is a book a year. I love it. Eh? Eh? Is that, maybe <laughs> that's what you needed. Maybe that was the whole thing. A page a day is a book a year. Carolyn yes. Swayze, ladies and gentlemen. No truer words have been said. <laughs> no truer words. Mussy cho. Except for this is going to be about as much fun as a gut full of full of full of pinworms. That's a pretty good truth as well. <laughs> no kidding. And this was a lot more fun than a gut full of pinworms, Julian. I agree. Okay. Mussy cho, everybody. Have a wonderful day. Happy writing and uh, happy reading. Thank Take care. You. If you're interested in writing nonfiction, the University of King's College MFA in Creative Nonfiction might be for you. Find out more at ukings.ca slash MFA. And if you'd like to hear more book-related conversations, check out Bookings, the podcast of our friends at the King's Co-op Bookstore. That's it for today's show. Thanks to Richard Van Camp for talking to us. His latest book, Gather, Richard Van Camp on the Joy of Storytelling, is available from the University of Regina Press. Further reading is produced by the University of King's College MFA program in Creative Nonfiction. Our editor is Samantha Hepperly. Music by Pete Johnston. Graphics by Mike Smith. I'm your host, Jillian Turnbull. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.